trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we are off and running and ready to revel in some wrong think. By the way, welcome to those of you who may be joining us for the first time. Our little audience is growing. How do I know this? Okay, well, I can tell you this. During the live broadcast which uh, goes out over uh, K-Talk in Salt Lake City and over the Loving Liberty Radio Network and over the Fed by Ravens Media Network. And, uh, yes, I did hear from my friend Sam in Missouri. Uh, it, it does go out over the uh, Missouri Radio Network. And let's see, Talkstar Live and Liberty News Radio. I think I've covered everybody so far. Um, but the podcast, we can actually measure. We can see how many listens have taken place and by gar, there's a few people seem to have discovered this show. Thank you to everybody who at least mentions it to a friend or tells him, hey, maybe you should check this out. I hope we've got something great set up for you. I, I really have some, some interesting topics for this hour. And, and I want to start, first of all, by thanking my sponsors, including Alta Bank. And also, um, I want to thank uh, Landmark uh, Risk Management and Insurance. I'll be telling you more about them coming up. I want to start with something here that uh, that I, it's probably long overdue. And I, I almost this is like putting dessert out there first, because I don't know that the show is going to get any better from this point on. But there's I saw a commercial and I'm going to have a link to this in the show notes. And it's only I think it's about a three minute long commercial. Let me look here real quick. Yeah, it's about three minutes and 40 seconds. It's an ad for a candy bar. And I'm debating whether to, to play, you know, a portion of this. I, I, actually, I'm, I'm going to play a little bit of this. You'll just hear the audio. I'll kind of describe what's going on. And then you can look at this and, and watch the rest of the ad yourself. So this is the front lines of World War I, Christmas Eve, 1914. Snow is falling. Jenkins. You got soldiers in the, in the British trenches. One of them just got a package from home, and he opens it up, and oh, look, look in the package. Why, it's a Sainsbury chocolate bar. And he hears singing starting to, to come from across the trenches. Yeah, that's the German soldiers. Now they're being joined by their British counterparts. And the genius of this ad, it keeps switching back and forth between the two sides. You can see the soldiers in the trenches shooting uh, interested looks at each other like, what is happening here? If you can imagine the freezing cold temperatures. Now, the, the scene shifts, and it's the next morning. There's snow, there's frost, everybody's bundled up in their coats. And this young soldier who got the candy bar raises his hat above the trench. The Germans sound the alarm. Somebody's coming, somebody's coming. The rifles are pointed. The British soldiers' comrades are trying to stop him. And a young German soldier tells, don't, tells him, don't shoot. 
he too leaves the trench and starts to walk towards the British soldier. You can imagine how scared these guys are. And the, the ad portrays it beautifully. But I want you to hear this. Listen to how they greet one another. My name is Jim. My name is Otto. You notice that? No rank, nothing there. The other soldiers see it and they follow suit. And you can watch the rest of it. This is based on a true story. This is based on an actual event in which singing Christmas carols in the trenches led to the two opposing military forces laying down their arms and meeting up in no man's land. You know, I really thought, uh, I kind of thought I got the emotion out uh, by watching this ad before, but it touches my heart because what it shows here and what, and and again, this is based on a real story. This isn't just some, somebody came up with, Hey man, what if we did a like flower power story about these, these two warring sides coming together and playing soccer and exchanging gifts and shaking hands and talking with one another. It really happened. And if you want to to understand the, the reality, you know who was most horrified by that? The officers, the commanders who were sending these young men to fight and kill each other. Holy cow, that's fraternizing with the enemy. You can't do that. You're supposed to hate them. You're supposed to fear them. You're supposed to kill them on command. You got to see the rest of the ad to, to really appreciate just how how utterly touching this this message is. So why share this? Is it because I want you to get all weepy? Huh? No. I'd invite you over to watch the, watch the notebook <laughs> if that was the case. No. It's, uh, it's because this has been a year that has been characterized by almost relentless fear and rancor. I can't think of another time in my life when I've seen people more fearful and, and not just fearful, but just angry with each other on the prod as Louis L'Amour would say. And I look at this example of these two military forces that came together. And by the way, this wasn't general. It wasn't like every army everywhere in World War I laid down their arms and did this. It was in one secluded place there on the front lines. But it happened. And that leads us to, to ask, so why did it happen? What was it that, that caused this to take place? And the answer is, at some level, these individuals had a moment of clarity in how they saw one another. And they did not see each other as, you know, an enemy to be crushed or as a target to be destroyed. They recognized that they were, they were very much like one another. Now, I put the credit on this, you know, I, I give all credit to, to the Prince of Peace. After all, it was him that they were reverencing. That's why they were singing Christmas carols. They were acknowledging, you know, the birth of Jesus Christ. But this ad and and the whole story, there's actually a there's a feature length film. I think it's called Joyous Noel. Noel. I'm not saying it correctly because it's in French, but um, that, that tells the story of this this truce. And it's just a reminder. Maybe I'm the only one who needed this, but it's a reminder that even in the worst of circumstances, there's a source that we can turn to 
a source of divine love that doesn't fail and doesn't waver with wherever the political winds happen to be blowing at the time that can give us clarity on how to see one another. This is why I'm telling you, I, I don't I don't think that uh, I don't know that anything else I have to share in the remainder of this hour is, is going to be as important as what I'm sharing with you right now. But I thought I would lead off with this just on the off chance that maybe like me, you needed a reminder that uh, there is there is true goodness out there and there are truly good people out there. And for many, not all of them. A lot of that goodness can be traced to the fact that that uh, there is a, a love that they carry with them that is the source of that love is God Almighty. And you can see it in how they care for the people around them. You can see it in the charitable acts that they engage in, not just at this time of year, but, you know, at other times of the year. For some reason, though, our, our guard seems to come down. And, and I'll admit, for me, too. It's it's easier to find excuses to engage in charity at Christmas time. There's something about this season that that really does, and I don't know if it's the power of example. It just provokes this this uh, desire to to reach out, to help, to uplift, to 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 bless other people in some way. And by the way, I've been on the receiving end of that more times than I can count. So. In the remainder of the show, and we're going to take a break here in a minute, I've got some other things to share with you, some of which may or may not raise your blood pressure, depending on you know where, where your mental state is right now. But I'm sharing this message first and foremost as I start off today, just because I want to remind you that uh, there is still goodness. And those who are, are really determined to seek the good, the bright, the beautiful, they can find it. Even in the worst of circumstances, I've never had an ad for a candy bar bring tears to my eyes, but this one did. And it was, I think this was made back in 19 or rather in 2014. It was, you know, it was, it was made, you know, for the hundredth year commemoration of this Christmas truce. It's still probably the best ad that I've seen all year. You'll find it in the show notes. Go visit them at thebrianhydeshow.com. You're looking for the show notes for December 23rd. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. By the way, lines are open, 801-331-8113. All right, I'm ready to roll up my sleeves and dig into some of the dirtier parts of, uh, of the information that I had to share for you today. I should, that, that sounds vaguely, uh, that sounds kind of bad, doesn't it? Here's the dirty information that uh, your mom said I shouldn't tell you. But no, um, there, there are a few things I wanted to share Uh they're, they don't have quite the uplifting <laughs> sense that that first message had, but I think they're they're worth it nonetheless. Um, one of the things that I was I was very grateful to see is that uh, President Trump did issue pardons for a number of people yesterday. Now, sadly, no pardon for Julian Assange, no pardon for Edward Snowden, 
Two people who I believe absolutely deserve it. I was very happy to see that uh, my friend Phil Lyman, who was a county commissioner in uh, San Juan County, Utah, I believe he's out now actually a, a state representative, was pardoned for for the crime of uh, of driving an ATV up a closed trail in San Juan County a few years ago. Oh yeah. $96,000 in restitution he had to play he had to pay for traveling along a road that was was part of an easement that was regularly traveled by government vehicles because there was a water line that apparently comes down, down along that road but uh, because Recapture Canyon had been closed by order of the BLM you know it was it was called an illegal ride a crime, a crime against nature. And people went up there with him and, and oh, he actually spent time in jail. And now he's been officially pardoned. And I know this is not a very nice thing to say. Um, his his environmentalist hardcore critics are really upset about this, but they get upset about a lot of things. And so if they're feeling particularly constipated today because Phil was uh, was pardoned by the president. Well, Let's just say I'm not bothered by the fact that they're constipated. They probably were anyway. They're looking for a reason to be upset. And Phil's a good man. So I was happy to see that. Oh, and uh, Weldon Angelos had a chance to interview him a couple of years ago. Um, He was arrested and charged with, uh, I, I can't remember what the charge was. Basically, he was arrested for selling marijuana, but because he had a gun in his possession, he was facing a 55-year prison sentence under mandatory minimum sentencing guidelines. Now, the guy was not a violent criminal, but that seemed a bit excessive. He absolutely you know, deserved to, to have that case heard. I believe he got out of prison a few years ago, um, and, and anyway... That uh, he, he received a pardon. And you want to talk about somebody who has has shown himself to be um, a positive presence in the community. Weldon is the guy. So I'm very happy to see that. I, I'm sad that that there weren't more uh, pardons. And, and, and this is here's an interesting article, actually, from John Tamney. This is from the American Institute for Economic Research. He talks about how politicians are crushing Christmas miracles. And he actually has a suggestion here. If President Trump really wanted to send a message of freedom, and I mean one that if if he's on his way out, if he wanted to send a message that would reverberate and and smack down that authoritarian, we know best mentality that seems to permeate Washington, D.C. and so many of the, the states, he should consider doing a blanket pardon for any business owner who tries to remain open in spite of facing, you know, criminal charges or uh, fines or any other threats that are being thrown at them. I know it may seem like a bit of a pipe dream, but I would love to see that. Tammany says it's been said here before, and I should say it again. Every new American business is a bit of a miracle. That's the case because the conceit of a new commercial endeavor is that the people in the world's most capitalist country haven't fully met the needs of their customers such that new operation rates creation. So if the correct definition of an entrepreneur is someone who believes deeply in an idea, despite near-universal skepticism about same, never forget that Jeff Bezos and his early Amazon shareholders were broadly ridiculed, then the creator of a new business of any stripe is similarly revealing impressive courage. 
Tammany says implicit in any startup is that some of the world's most energetic people are not doing enough. And he says the tragedy right now is that the energetic are seeing their visions and dreams suffocated around the U.S., Even though the pre-COVID success of their businesses was a happy sign that they possessed an expertise when it came to fulfilling the wants of a customer base with voluminous choices, politicians gold by experts decided the past didn't matter. The very governmental concept that gave us the DMV, the passport office, and the post office decided that customer service experts couldn't be trusted to serve their valued patrons whose wants and needs had arguably been changed by the introduction of of a virus. They would be told what to do by the commercially inept. That businesses smacked around by force died and continue to die was and is a statement of the supremely obvious. And John Tamney says it has to stop. It's wrong. Imagine the helpless the helplessness business owners and employees feel right about now as they see all they've worked for taken away from them. The previous point is not just about money. There's joy and dignity in doing well by customers that extends well beyond earnings. It's a reminder that what's happening is inhumane, in addition to being economically tragic as cities and states across the U.S. reimpose lockdowns. It once again has to stop. And he says it's time for President Trump to end the madness and announce his readiness to pardon any business owner or employee who chooses to operate and serve against the decrees of city and state politicians. Now, he says to all this, it's reasonable to speculate at this point that some readers are perhaps properly mystified. What are we missing here? They might be asking alarmist as even the New York Times has been the last nine and a half months. The simple truth that the newspaper has routinely reported is that nearly half of the virus's lethal qualities are associated with nursing homes. Others will point to the essential Holman Jenkins recent point at the Wall Street Journal that 88% of those with the virus either don't know they have it or don't feel sick enough to find out if they have it. Others will cite the endlessly excellent Jeffrey Tucker's observations about a survival rate from the virus that well exceeds what's hard to exceed. 99%. Now, the arguments all make sense, but with the exception of the reporters at the New York Times, all of the above who've provided this information would probably agree with what has been said here all along. Numerical arguments win in the near term only to lose big in the long term. We know this firstly because the more lethal a virus, the less of a case there is for political force to combat it as is. Assuming Neil Ferguson's prediction of 2 million American deaths had been realistic or the New York Times of 6.6 million, government decrees would have been utterly meaningless and arguably insufficient. If millions are going to die, Americans who are innovative in all ways will come up with ways to avoid contraction along with ways to vanquish what kills that politicians could never dream of. Translated, we don't need a law to avoid sickness or death, nor do scientists and doctors need government prodding to divine cures to killers. Markets work. But he says the main thing that is that compelling as the numerical arguments may be, they're weak relative to the the joy so many in politics derive from the raw expression of power. To them, numbers and common sense don't matter, which is why the only argument that can stand up to the desire of politicians to control how we do things is is freedom. People should be free to operate their businesses and employees should be free to work simply because they were born with that basic right. And just the same, customers should and do have the right not to patronize businesses if they don't feel compelled. 
Freedom must be the first, middle, and last argument, he says. It's wrong for politicians to take away our businesses and our right to work. Period. End of story. Everything else loses. Which brings us back to President Trump. He says if Trump were more introspective, he would acknowledge that he erred mightily in March of 2020. He should have made plain that while cities and states are autonomous, his administration would fight daily and campaign daily for the right of every American to work and operate his or her business. But since he did the wrong thing then, no better time than now to make up for what he did wrong. Trump should announce right here and now he promises to pardon anyone who chooses to work and be open for business despite the decrees of the power hungry. What a way to leave the White House. What a legacy of freedom. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Again, 801-331-8113 if you would like to call in. I understand that we're all busy. For some people, it's easier just to sit back. And, of course, if you're listening to the podcast version of the show, well, then uh, there's really no option because nobody's going to answer. Nonetheless... Thanks again for being a part of our growing audience. And I just want to take a moment here to thank my sponsors, including Alta Bank. That would be your mortgage lender, my friend John Staples. Now, if you're listening to me within the state of Utah, you need to know that uh, right now interest rates are ridiculously low. And though the month is going quickly, you could still score on a low-cost refinance with free appraisals in the month of December. But you got to get a hold of John. I've made it easy for you to do so. Go to my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. At the bottom of the page, you'll see a list for my sponsors. And there's the contact link where you can click it and email John directly. That's Alta Bank. Again, I thank them for being a sponsor of this program. So I've heard the word populism for a long time. Well, he's a populist. And, and I have to admit, I've always heard that word spoken with just a trace of contempt. And it's probably because the first populist that I ever really became aware of was, uh, was a fellow by the name of Bo Greitz. I saw there's a few people kind of winced. Oh, yeah, we, we remember Bo. Uh, my wife and I were newlyweds back in 1992 and driving across Wyoming to go visit her parents in Denver. And on our way across Wyoming... I'm just scrolling through the radio trying to find something interesting to listen to and landed on some talk show on some little AM station and heard this guy, Bo Greitz, speak for the first time. And I went, this guy actually makes some sense. Now, you got to remember, I was pretty young and naive. I I, uh, had been listening to Rush Limbaugh for maybe a year at that point. And uh, was just beginning to to start to to break out of the, uh, you know, you must be neutral in all things and never have any opinion that anyone could disagree with. And what I heard Bo Greitz talk about was uh, the importance of freedom and the importance of of uh, being in charge of your own destiny and, and, and claiming your freedom, not waiting for some politician to tell you, okay, you now have my permission to be free. But, of course, Bo had some baggage. And, you know, that's uh, that. I think the first time I heard the term populist, it was applied to him. Oh, yeah, well, he's, you know, some right wing populist. And I thought, wow, that kind of sounds like a, a negative thing. Now, I don't know if I have an accurate definition of populism, but essentially it's it's speaking to the common person, 
more so than trying to appeal to the elites or the academics or, you know, the, the upper crust. And so when you see someone who connects with the average person, um, you may hear them referred to as a populist. I don't know. I may be a populist myself because I don't consider myself one of the elite. But I was very happy to read this article by Joaquin Book. This is also from the American Institute for Economic Research. He's speaking of 2020 and refers to it as the year populism was right and the experts weren't. Here's what that means. He says 2020 has been an odd year, a year on which more books, unqualified articles and uninformed opinions will be voiced than possibly any other year in the history of our species. But then again, he says we all have megaphones of various sizes these days and access to blogs and Twitter and newsletters and informational overloads such that this year's informational misuse is not exactly an achievement. He says in one sense, the year has been a turning point. For decades, the chattering classes, politicians, journalists, authors, academics have bemoaned populism as a political force. While a contentious term and not quite clear to whom it really applies, it's mostly used as a slur for politicians calling for things with which the speaker strongly disagrees. But he says a more concrete description of it includes a a claim to represent the real people instead of the fake elites that the establishment protects. And he says this is a sentiment that all democratically elected officials share, and so they're all more or less populist. And B, wanting to act very quickly to solve what the populist and the real people see as some immediate danger. Joaquin Book says in the last 20 years or so of horrified indignance against populists in the West, these dangers have variously been immigration, Chinese competition, the European Union, or the bankers. But could, in principle, be anything that the people that concerns the people or something that its current leaders aren't addressing. In 2020, that external force became a virus, a virus that at first seemed to be magnitudes more dangerous than others of its kind. But on closer inspection is more like a garden variety of seasonal colds and flus that we used to yawn at. Instead of investigating, debating and contemplating as establishment politicians have pretended to do for the last decades, the world's leaders overwhelmingly jumped into high gear. They did what elected officials were accused by populists not to have done before, which is acting. We must do something as the politician's syllogism goes, and imposing all sorts of invasive policies on people is something, so therefore it must be done. The pandemic, writes The Economist in a leader piece for its Christmas edition, is impervious to populist denials. So he says, let's engage in some so-called denialism. And here he goes about explaining how everyone is wrong. In a London Review of Books essay from last year titled, Can the Poor Think? Malcolm Bull remarks on some awkward misses by the expert establishment in recent times. Quote, it has become clear that it is possible for experts to be completely wrong about matters of real importance. The presence of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq before the Second Gulf War. The stability of the world economy before the 2008 crash. The probability of Trump's winning the U.S. election. So why should they not also be wrong about climate change, the desirability of vaccination, and the consequences of Brexit? These aren't unreasonable questions. End quote. Now, Joaquin Book says anyone who's read his Hayek or Bill Easterly's 2014 denouncement of the development of economics and aid industry, the tyranny of experts, is at no odds to understand why. Poorly structured systems select experts that don't receive enough feedback from reality 
and don't bear the consequences of their actions. For a few years after the thoroughly surprising, at least to the elites, victory of Trump and Brexit, the chattering classes were all on this. The New York Times promised to cover all of America and include a diversity of opinion, a promise that lasted for about three years. And posh authors wouldn't stop writing books about the globaliz- those that globalization left behind. Post-truth ran the world, they explained, and nobody really seemed to care for the facts or nuance of any matter. Arrived March 2020 and the experts sounded the alarm, this virus was uniquely suited to harm us. This was the other that justified a once-in-many-generations national emergency that required an end to our way of life. Fatality rates were allegedly magnitudes higher than other coronaviruses. Asymptomatic spread was everywhere. So we must contain even the healthiest of, of us. Masks don't work, but we mandate them anyway. And even those experts who first openly rejected them were overruled by symbolic-minded politicians who desperately wanted to act. Only the discarded populists, the Nigel Farages of the world, or the paranoid libertarians could possibly object to government overreach in such an important time. Everyone else got in line, and we all panicked. When politicians and health professionals imposed all these ever-changing rules, most regular people presumed that there was something to them. Surely those in charge wouldn't mandate anything this drastic if it weren't working, or unless they knew what they were doing. Little did we know about the appalling nature of government, or perhaps we knew but momentarily forgot. And as the ordeals got worse and worse and worse, while the virus did its own thing entirely unperturbed by whatever measures the experts invented to conquer it, the longer the farce went on, the more people started to ignore them. Almost as many people, almost as many Americans traveled for Thanksgiving as usual, despite our overlords publicly chanting against it. Societies developed this game where officials made grandstanding speeches before they themselves cheated the very rules they imposed. Well, the rest of us cheated the rules, too, whenever we got a chance. Ignore masks when nobody sees. Go outside even when we're not allowed to. Have friends over when nobody noticed. Visit the park or the countryside even when prohibited. Hold mass protests if your woke issue is important enough. He says in the face of overwhelming evidence against their pandemic policies, the establishment stuck to their story, misinterpreting reality as the cases and deaths came down in the late spring and summer, an outcome that seemed to prove that the public campaigns against the virus worked. Never mind that the curves reversed themselves before the policies started working, and they didn't do so more rapidly in jurisdictions that tightened the noose the most. Deep down, 2020 has taught us that officials don't have a clue. They don't control what they pretend to control, and that their measures aren't targeted or calibrated for stopping the spread of a virus. I'm really enjoying this, and I think this is, uh, this is possibly one of the best pieces I've come across in a while. I'm going to come back to this in a couple of minutes. I'll finish up with just a few more thoughts. If you would like to add your thoughts, you have that opportunity. Call 801-331-8113. This just seems to drive home something that uh, that I have, have uh, long tried to persuade my listeners to consider, and that is less important than the source you turn to for truth is how you are developing your ability to recognize truth. Think about that. We'll be back in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Just want to give a quick shout-out here to uh, Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. Now, they provide a lot of commercial insurance, and if you own a business, uh, this should be of importance uh, to you because it can get complicated quickly. So if you have wondered sometimes if you're spending money on insurance policies, but you're not sure if you're protected like you should be, particularly within a commercial setting, I'd like you to check out LandmarkRiskManagement.com. There's a link actually in the show notes. I want you to get a hold of my friend Steve Burgess. Talk to him. He'll help you make sense of it. Tell him thank you for sponsoring the show. And again, the notes, uh, or I'm sorry, the connection. Let's try that again. The contact link is in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. That's Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. All right. One final thought here that I wanted to share with you. Um, I don't know if you've noticed this. It's not like this is my trademark, so please tell me you noticed it. But uh, I, t- I tend to use the word collectivism more so than throwing out uh, you know, the more popular monikers of socialism and, and communism. Because there's a lot of isms out there. But most of the forms of collectivism that, that tyrannize the public, you know, they, they have to do with subverting the rights of the individual for some collective goal. By the way, um, racism is just a particularly ugly form of collectivism, as is identity politics, because it, it swallows people up into a collective rather than looking at them individually and what they bring to the table in terms of their character. Jeff Thomas, writing for International Man, asks the question, is collectivism inevitable? Because I believe right now the the biggest challenge that we're facing in in our country and in the world is not that the Democrats might, might have the Oval Office come January 20th. They might. And if they do, it's it's collectivism that drives a lot of what they're trying to accomplish. But sadly, their Republican counterparts are collectivist as well. They just like to put their emphasis on different areas of collectivism. There's a quote here. Whichever party gains the day, tyrants or demagogues are most sure to take the offices. Now, Jeff Thomas says the quote above may cause the reader to nod his head as throughout the world today. We're witnessing a distinct lack of choice in so-called democratic elections. A damned if you do, damned if you don't choice of equally incapable or even dangerous candidates. However, he says the quote is from 1841 and was made by New York Assemblyman Clinton Roosevelt, a distant cousin of Franklin Roosevelt. Now, the Roosevelt family occupies a recurrent and pernicious place in American political history. Other relatives of President Roosevelt include not only the obvious Theodore Roosevelt, but John Adams, John Quincy Adams, and Martin Van Buren. More interesting is that early on, the idea of a dominant central government became the focus of the Roosevelt family. As early as 1791, John Adams became a member of Alexander Hamilton's Federalist Party, which sought federal diktat in preference to individual states' rights. Later in 1841, decades prior to the publication of Karl Marx's Das Kapital, Clinton Roosevelt proposed a scheme for central economic planning and control of society. The concept was for a totalitarian government in which individuality is required to give way to collectivism. It was to be run by a small elite group of which he, not surprisingly, would be a part. Mr. Roosevelt acknowledged that for this to be fully effective, the U.S. Constitution would at some point need to be scrapped. 
Some years later, in 1922, socialist editor Benito Mussolini created with the financial assistance of the J.P. Morgan Company a corporatist collectivist state, very much in the vein of the, 19, of the 1841 scheme by Clinton Roosevelt. Then, in 1933, newly elected President Franklin Roosevelt established the National Recovery Administration. Yes, that NRA, which bore an uncanny, uncanny resemblance, rather, to the 1841 plan. Now, two years later, the U.S. Supreme Court voted unanimously that the National Recovery Administration was unconstitutional. Undaunted, the Roosevelt government replaced the NRA with the National Labor Relations Act, or NLRA. The Roosevelt argument in favor of the NLRA was that the Great Depression was caused by market instability that could be corrected only by government intervention and control through a central planned economy. Now, historians are fond of telling the tales of uh, Messrs. Jefferson and Madison, who argued so strenuously for freedom in the late 18th century, that, that the new United States is said to have begun as the freest country that ever existed. That view is quite true. But in stating it by itself, we may overlook the fact that a concurrent effort was also very much in play at that time. In fact, the first presidential candidate was deeply divided between the Jeffersonian idea of freedom and the Hamiltonian concept of central planning and control. Now, although the U.S. became a shining example of freedom to the world, it's nonetheless true that from the start, liberty's evil twin was both active and, in, and evolving. So Jeff Thomas says it should come as little surprise then that as we observe the U.S. today, the Green New Deal can be seen as the next logical step in the spirit of the NLRA. In fact, he says, while the details of collectivism might change from time to time, the overall objectives remain the same. Tell me if any of these sound familiar. Rule by a small, preferably unelected elite group. Central control of production, which would be socialism, or central ownership of production, communism, or a combination thereof. Central control of the creation and management of all currency. Control of the populace by a police state. The limitation of free choice and wealth creation among the populace in order to maintain a permanent condition of subservience. Holy cow. Can I just say as an aside, if you look at some of the, the favors being doled out by Congress in the latest you know, spending bill and in the latest COVID relief if that doesn't smack of trying to keep the, the people in a state of subservience while bestowing favors promised to be paid off by the taxpayers at some future date to their cronies, I don't know what else you, you could look at that would be more convincing. Jeff Thomas says, well, we look at this, when we look at the shopping list for tyranny, we can see it's nothing new. It's true, however, we tend to, not, to generally not regard these items as a cohesive list, but rather as an assortment of vaguely related concepts that seem to annoyingly rear their ugly heads with a fair bit of regularity. But, he says, if we do make the effort to consider them as a shopping list for the would-be elite, well, then they take on an entirely different light. It becomes clear to us that from one generation to the next, each of these objectives is moved forward as much as possible, as often as possible. Over the course of one decade, one or more bullet points advance. In another decade, a different combination of points may advance. And interestingly, we see many of the same actors popping up repeatedly. Banking families such as the Morgans continue to back such efforts both in America and in other countries. Families such as the Rockefellers advance the plan generation after generation, adding new families like the Gates and Newsom families along the way. The plan itself does not morph with time, but it does become more sophisticated. 
the principal objectives remain the same. But the details adjust with the times we are in. Clearly, in the present day, we are witnessing an advance on all fronts. Europe and North America are dominated by an unelected elite who operate outside of the limelight and bypass the nuisance of political election. Those who hold elective office often regard themselves as being elite, but over time are seen to be disposable by the elite. Jeff Thomas says, although collectivism in all its guises, socialism, communism, fascism, etc., has proven to be an utter failure wherever it has been implemented, it is once more gaining favor amongst those who have never lived under it and may now have gained the majority in both North America and Europe. The elimination of cash is intended to ensure that only central governments can create and control currencies. Now, the jury is still out on whether they have an ace up their sleeve that will allow them to either eliminate or co-opt Bitcoin. Most importantly, he says, liberty is under continual attack. Fear-based propaganda, particularly that portion generated by the COVID-19 scare, is converting a majority of citizens into sheep who now reflexively comply with every new control on their freedom for the greater good. Now, this does not answer the question, is collectivism inevitable? But it most surely confirms the likelihood of conversion to a fully collectivist state has never been greater. Now, this may leave you, like me, wondering, okay, so what can we do? Well, you know, I, I'm afraid we're, we're kind of trained to think of this in terms of, well, what's one quick, easy solution that will knock this all down, get everything in place in one fell swoop, and solve the problem once and for all? And yet, if you remember, what he was pointing out here is we didn't get here in one fell swoop. This was, this is, these things have been implemented and insinuated into our lives over the course of many generations. So it's not unreasonable to think it could take a long time for us to extricate ourselves from the clutches of such a system. The only advice that I can give is if you do not understand the principles and practices of freedom, it's time to start applying yourself. It's not incomprehensible. You don't have to have a Juris Doctor title at the end of your name or some other impressive combination of letters. You just have to have a burning desire in your heart to be free to understand the principles and practices of freedom and then to apply them and to proclaim them as far and wide as possible. It's supposed to be a lifetime pursuit, so let's get started. This is The Brian Hyde Show.